The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oye, 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 all persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States in this Honorable Court. Good afternoon, we're happy to have you with us. Um, on, um, not seen by you, but with us here, um, and she can see you and we can see you and uh, you can see us, but not um, our third colleague, uh, Judge Rushing. Um, so we're going to try to be mindful of the fact that she'll be wanting to ask questions and defer to her because we can't see when she's getting ready to do that. We're happy to hear argument in our first case, number 20-1191, Wikimedia versus National Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys. Mr. Toomey, we're happy yeah. to hear from you. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court. I'm Patrick Toomey, representing Appellant Wikimedia Foundation. This appeal is about Congress's decision to authorize review of intrusive surveillance activities in the courts. We explain in our briefs why Wikimedia has put forward more than enough evidence to defeat summary judgment, evidence on which a reasonable fact finder could rely to conclude it's more likely than not that some of Wikimedia's trillions of communications have been subject to upstream surveillance. These specific facts support Wikimedia's standing and defeat summary judgment. The question is what happens next? The government argues that the case still must be dismissed based on state secrets, but Wikimedia has put forward more than enough to trigger FISA's protections. So it's FISA's procedures that control here. That's the real heart of this appeal, your honors. The question of whether a plaintiff who comes into court with extensive public evidence of surveillance can obtain judicial review as Congress mandated in FISA. I'd like to begin there and then explain how this case should go forward using the in-camera review procedures that Congress enacted. In FISA, Congress authorized civil suits challenging unlawful surveillance and specified procedures for litigating those claims. Nonetheless, the government argues that it has the power to block this court review of FISA surveillance by asserting the state secrets privilege. Well, isn't um, essential to um the government's argument, its claim that um, 1806F um, only gives uh, the government, a, as, he, as it puts it, a shield, it doesn't give you a sword. You're right, Your Honor, that the government argues that 1806F only applies in criminal suppression proceedings or similar proceedings. But other courts have repeatedly held that these procedures are available in civil cases like this one. That's what the Ninth Circuit held in Fazaga. The DC Circuit recognized it in the Barr case and other district courts have found the same, including in the INRE NSA Telecoms case. To be sure, but if you just look at the structure of 1806 itself, it looks like all of the other subsections are um, government protection, if you will. I don't think Can we agree on that? Uh, no, I, I'm afraid I don't agree with that, Your Honor. Um, first of all, the, the text of 1806F itself controls, and that the text of the third prong, which, which um, governs whenever an aggrieved person files a motion to discover or obtain FISA-related information, is, is broad and clear. And because that text is not ambiguous, it controls here, and it covers circumstances where a plaintiff like Wikimedia had sought to discover 
FISA-related information in a civil case. Mr. Toomey, can we, uh, can you back up? You started with the text, but what about the title of the statute, which suggests, consistent with the government's view of things, that it only applies when there's some affirmative use of this information being used by the government and or some attempt by a defendant to rebuff that use via a motion to suppress or something like that. That, uh, I mean, that at least seems to make sense based on the heading of the statute. Why isn't that persuasive or at least some indication of what Congress intended? Well, this, the heading of this of the section is use of information. It does not specify use of information by the government. And of, of course, the title doesn't control the meaning of, you know, in the extent that it's inconsistent with the words of the statute itself. Congress. I'm sorry, is, isn't there federal law that the titles don't make any difference? There's certainly that's, a state law. That's exactly what I'm saying. The, the title does not control the meaning of, of the text. And to the, so to the extent the government's arguing that it, that that determines the meaning of the statute, we disagree. But again, going to the text of 1806F itself, uh, Congress was clear when it enacted FISA that the, that provision controlled uh, in both criminal and civil cases. And the statute does not contain any of the limitations that the government tries to read into that third scenario under 1806F. If notice of surveillance was a precondition to parties using 1806F, Congress could have stopped after the first prong in 1806F, the prong that says when a person has received notice. But Congress, yes, this go is, ahead, Judge Rushing. This is the invisible Judge Rushing. Um, Thank you. I, but one of the limits that's explicitly in the text is that the person must be an aggrieved person, um, which Congress has defined as someone who is the target of an electronic surveillance or any other person whose communications or activities were subject to electronic surveillance. Why doesn't that um, limit the provisions, even if it doesn't create this, you know, solely government shield? Uh, version of the statute, it at least limits it to individuals who in fact were surveilled and are um, and are attempting to litigate regarding that surveillance. So you're right, Judge Rushing, that 1801K defines who is aggrieved, but it does not say what a party must show in order to uh, be aggrieved and to utilize Section 18. In the ordinary course of civil proceedings, a, a party is entitled to discovery after it overcomes a motion to dismiss and has put forward specific plausible allegations. And that is the natural reading of the statute here in civil cases where a plaintiff is challenging vice surveillance. Hold, hold on, Mr. Toomey. I think we may have lost Judge Moss. No, it's just my um video went off. I can still hear you. <laughs> so maybe oh, I'll oh, Okay. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead. I'm going to try to get it back. Okay. Thank you. Um, so as I was saying, this, the statute, neither 1801K um, defines what a plaintiff must show in order to uh, be aggrieved. And what Congress was attempting to do in 1801K was to make clear that an aggrieved person um, is someone who falls within the scope of the Fourth Amendment protection a person who was targeted using FISA surveillance or who was otherwise subject to FISA surveillance. Now, I also want to 
say that the government's reading would require um, courts to essentially conduct a bifurcated mini trial on a person's aggrieved person's status in every civil case involving FISA surveillance. Because of what, what the implication of the government's argument is that, it, is that a person should have to prove they are aggrieved before they're entitled to discovery. As Professor Vladek lays out in his amicus brief to the Daga Court explains that its decision that's inconsistent with uh, with how how discovery typically occurs in a civil or case. It, you know, or it could just be an indication that that as the government suggests that the the in camera review proceedings have to do with um, determining the legality of surveillance that that people that people know actually occurred rather than with determining whether, uh, you know, affirming or denying whether it occurred. Well, the, the standing and the lawfulness inquiries are inherently intertwined in Fourth Amendment cases. The question of whether, whether a person was surveilled and the question of how a person was, was surveilled are, are intertwined and often rely on review of the exact same materials or overlapping materials. In, this, in these types of cases, it would be the FISA application and the intercept. And the other thing that I want to emphasize for the court is that the government's interpretation is at odds with the statute structure and the comprehensive scheme that Congress enacted, because it would mean that the government could control who could avail themselves of the civil remedy that Congress created in Section 1810 at the same time that it enacted Section 1806. And because it would mean that a person would have to litigate the question whether they were surveilled uh, to prove. And in the course of that threshold proceeding, the government could assert the state secrets privilege exactly the way that it's asserted here. And that would make American citizens' ability to take, to avail themselves of the remedy that Congress created completely contingent on whether the government had admitted the surveillance. And Congress- But isn't that, uh, Mr. Toomey, I mean, that's always the case when the government asserts the state secrets privilege. There may be a remedy that a plaintiff may be entitled to either in a civil or criminal case, but that remedy is foregone because of the higher interest of protecting um, the, the government secrets. That is true under the common law state secrets your honor but in in FISA, congress is clearly uh setting out to do something different the, the structure of the statute and the legislative history makes it clear that congress is seeking to balance civil liberties against national security and to create a set of procedures that allowed plaintiff with substantial claims of illegal surveillance to uh, obtain a ruling on the merits and and where appropriate to obtain a remedy and Congress so with respect to a, that ruling on the merits, so you, you've made the point, I guess, that the caption or heading of the statute doesn't control. Let me see if the subheading might be more persuasive. So 1806G talks about the remedy that's allowed in these cases, and it begins with the caption that says, suppression of evidence, denial of the motion. And the government argues that this just doesn't make any sense, the argument you're making, because Ultimately, what the remedy is, is a grant or denial of a motion to suppress. 
So uh, what's your response? I mean, that's a, not an adjudication of the merits, but simply a ruling consistent with the balance of the statute that really deals with the use improper or otherwise of information in a particular context. Well, 1806G, again, based on its text, is not limited to suppression. The text of 1806G says that a court can um, issue, can order suppression or other appropriate relief uh, based on the parties the agreed for motion. And that clearly encompasses relief other other than suppression as the text shows. So again, we don't think that 1806G forecloses plaintiffs from using 1806F in the way that the Ninth Circuit has recognized in Fazaga and in the way that the, the DC Circuit uh, acknowledged was available in the bar case. Now, I, I want to I wanna go back for a moment here, Your Honor, and, and touch on one of the big, big picture themes of this case, which is Wikimedia has put forward compelling evidence of surveillance. It has trillions of, of internet communications, web communications. The government has acknowledged that it conducted surveillance on internet networks. And Wikimedia, Wikimedia's communications traverse all of those things. The government has acknowledged that it collects web activity, precisely the type of communications that Wikimedia engages in. And Wikimedia has put forward the expert declaration of Scott Bradner and and his, Scott Bradner's conclusions have been endorsed by nearly two dozen technologists in the amicus brief committed in this case. The, the government's theory, in order for the government to be right that Wikimedia lacks standing and is not aggrieved, the government would have to be filtering out every single one of Wikimedia's communications. And the government has not put forward a single piece of evidence that supports the existence of a Wikimedia. Well, they have an expert who says that they filtered, they could filter out. Um, That's right. They they have an expert who says, in his view, it would be technically feasible. But the point I want to emphasize is that the government's argument is not really that if Wikimedia had more evidence, had more experts, it could satisfy uh, the requirements of FISA and use those procedures. But the government's argument at the end of the day is that it has the power to decide who can proceed to obtain court review under FISA and who cannot. And our claim is that that is inconsistent with the text of the statute, structure the statute, including the remedy that Congress created in section. With the legislative history with which acknowledges that the government may have to proceed um, in some cases, in civil suits brought against it, and with Congress's overarching purpose in FISA, which was to reign um, overreaching executive branch surveillance. Can we go back to uh, Judge Russian's question about um, the uh, aggrieved person? And as I read your brief, um, you acknowledge that the standing and merits issues would, would have to be determined together. You say there's no problem. The government says they're always bifurcated, that that's the uniform practice. That's right. The, the government makes that claim, Your Honor. But as we point out in our brief, it's it's not true in, in the first place. There have been FISA cases where standing and the merits have been uh, litigated at the same time, including the um, 
the district court proceedings in the Clapper case itself. But, and second, there's, there's nothing in the statute that requires courts to bifurcate. In fact- no, to be sure. Well, let, let me ask, let me put it to you this way. Uh, you know, in the Supreme Court, um, often the question is, well, how does this opinion write? And so what would we, if we came out your way, what would we be saying to the district court? Oh, we, Don't bifurcate? <laughs> what? I, that's a good question, Your Honor. I, you know, I think the court could, we think the court should, the district court proceedings should go forward on both standing and the merits together. And we think that the court should, should suggest that the court, district court proceed in that way because it preserves the greatest flexibility for the district court in deciding how to rule uh, down the line. If the court is ruling on standing and the merits, it has the option, if it wishes, in the way we describe in our brief, to issue a, a short ruling that does not just determine whether it has ruled on standing or the merits. I see my time's up. You can go on and my colleagues may have additional questions too. So finish the answer to that question. Sure. Thank you, Your Honor. And so I, we do think that the case should move forward on both and that that preserves the greatest flexibility for the district court to um, take steps to ensure that it does not unnecessarily disclose any sensitive information. But I, one, one important point on that, Your Honor, is that the government makes obviously many arguments about uh, what it claims is the potential for sensitive information to be disclosed. We, I want to emphasize that that, question, that issue is not relevant to the legal question before the court, which is whether FISA controls here. Congress made a judgment when it enacted FISA, and that, that judgment is, is binding. It balanced the risks of disclosure in the types of uh, in-camera proceedings that it prescribed against what it saw were the benefits of ensuring that parties could obtain judicial review of far-reaching government surveillance activity. And Go ahead, Judge Matz. No, I was going to let my colleagues ask questions if they had them. I thought you'd answered the question. Judge Rushing, do you have any further questions? Yes. Cool. Um, if that's all right, I'd like to. Oh yes, I'm, I'll, I'll give the I'll give the government the same amount of time. Thank you. Um, I had a couple of questions on the your establishing standing on these prong two and prong three of the what we're calling the Wikimedia uh, allegation. Um, the district court on prong two relied on this statement by Director Coates about um, that international on circuits carrying international internet communications. Um, you don't, you mentioned that in your brief, but don't really rely on it. And I, I just wondered if you have a response to the defendant's argument that a circuit carrying international internet communications could be found domestically, that that, that term does not have to refer to uh, international circuits found internationally, but could in fact uh, be domestic because those circuits also carry international internet communications. Yes, Your Honor, a circuit carrying international communications could be domestic. And, but we, what we point to is the government's own disclosure in the Fisk opinion, showing that it conducts this surveillance at international internet links. And so do what, you, are you, sorry, um, and I, you don't have to concede anything you don't want to, but I just want to make sure I understand. Are you agreeing with the government that 
the district court erred in relying on that statement by Director Coates for this to find prong two satisfied? I don't, we certainly don't agree the district court erred. We think that there is stronger evidence that supports Wikimedia's position and that, Your Honor, is the evidence we cite, the evidence about the surveillance happening at international internet links, because that is a more specific term. And that is the disclosure that Scott Bradner focuses on, in addition to others, in describing why Wikimedia's communications are subject to upstream surveillance as they traverse those international internets. And that's where you have a disagreement about whether that term is the same as the term circuits. And the district court concluded that that was a state secret. And you're not contesting that ruling, that whether these two terms are equal is a state secret. You're just saying your expert can, without knowing the secret, your expert can determine from public evidence that, in fact, those terms are the same. We are contesting that it's a state secret, Your Honor. And because the information is public. So because, and this may be... Where in your brief do you contest the district court's conclusion about the seven categories of state secrets? I saw a footnote kind of alluding to maybe that you have qualms with one part of one of those categories, but I don't recall you contesting the conclusion that these seven categories were state secrets. Your Honor, we say at multiple points in our brief, and we say this in the text of the brief, that to the extent that information is already publicly available in the government's own disclosures, it is not protected by the state secrets privilege. And that the categories that the district court described were therefore too broad to the extent that they covered information that the government itself had already made public. Where the government's own disclosures, as in this instance, show that the surveillance occurs at international internet links, the district court is entitled to rely on expert testimony about what the meaning of international internet link is to a person who, a networking expert who is familiar with the meaning of those terms in the context of the internet backbone. I don't want to keep us going on for too long, but I do have one more question, if that's okay. On the prong three, there's an amicus brief by the technologist that raises the idea that tier one, what's the term here, that folks who are a tier one ISP encapsulate or wrap the headers so that what the government's claiming it does in terms of filtering based on header information would be impossible on those, with those ISPs. I think that's an interesting, that's, I'm interested to hear what the government has to say in response to that, but I wanted to ask you whether any evidence about that was brought up in the district court. I didn't find anything in the JA, but it's a big record, and I wanted your help on looking to see whether this header wrapping or encapsulating was brought to the district court's attention or whether there's facts in the record about it. I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head, Your Honor. You're quite right that there's an extensive expert 
record here. Uh, I, of course, am happy to try to find the answer to that for you. I will say that we have put forward in the record extensive evidence that the government is not engaging in filtering in the way that the government's expert hypothesizes. And if the government is not engaging in filtering, then uh, it is necessarily copying and reviewing some of Wikimedia's communications. And Wikimedia's evidence, of course, on the standards that control at summary judgment in this case and every other case uh, is entitled to be credited as true, reasonable inferences are to be taken in Wikimedia's favor, and the district court failed to apply those standards properly in this case. Rich Diaz, do you have any additional questions? Uh, I don't, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, seven, almost eight minutes, and so I will give the government eight minutes and let you reserve some time for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Good Cheers. afternoon, and may it please the court, Joe Busa on behalf of the government. The district court correctly denied plaintiff's motion to compel discovery into highly classified facts regarding the location, subjects, and methods of NSA's upstream surveillance. Those matters are state secrets whose disclosure would cause, quote, exceptionally grave damage to national security. And we urge the court to review the classified declaration to that effect. Now, those privileged matters are absolutely privileged under this court's case law applying the state secrets privilege. They can't be used by the government or by plaintiff or by a district court sitting in camera. The district court also correctly granted summary judgment to the government because that privileged information will be so central to the case that any attempt to proceed will threaten that information's disclosure. That includes in-camera use of that information it was antithetical to the core principles of the privilege. And there's a lot to address in this case, but I think it's most important to start where the court spent most of its time with my colleague on the other side. And that's the contention that a, a, an obscure pr provision of the FISA um, applies here and displaces the privilege, but it does no such thing. And I think it's important to start just by looking at 1806 as a whole, to read the statute as a whole in order to understand what it's doing. And I'll start with the title of the statute. The Yates case actually makes clear that the title of the statute is relevant to the interpretation of the substantive provisions within the statute. And the title is use of information. Now, whose use is it? It's, it's the government's use, as illustrated by all of the subsequent provisions of that statute. A says that, that use, the government's use of that information is subject to minimization procedures. B says that the government's use of that information can only be done with the attorney general's permission. C says that the government's use of that information in litigation requires the government to provide notice. D says the same thing about a state government's use of that information. E says that when we're using information against somebody in litigation, that person can seek to suppress that use based on the allegation, based on uh, allegations of unlawfulness. 
Now, taking that as background, it's clear what the procedures in F are for, therefore resolving those specific issues, the government's ability to use the information or not by application of in-camera procedures if we invoke them. That's why the statute says if the attorney general invokes them. It doesn't say the attorney general shall invoke them whenever some plaintiff wants to make us. And, and the key issue here, as the court was focusing on during his time with my colleague, is that the decision inside an F procedure regards the legality of surveillance to use that as the rule of decision about granting or denying the motion that brought entry into the F procedures. It has nothing Mr. to do Busa, with can final... I, uh, just TSE, I'm sorry to interrupt. Of but, course. Um, so with respect to 1806 F, I'm interested in, uh, I think obviously interested in that third subset of that section um, and which you've sort of touched on here generally. But in your brief at page 18, you said, uh, and I'll just quote it here, that that sec uh, circumstance, uh, little i3, is not a, a free-floating right to discovery. And then you say that's rather it's a description of a situation in which certain motions made pursuant to some other provision of law may be removed by the government from adversarial adjudication in open court and submitted for in-camera determination. But then you stop and move on to something else and you don't give us any examples of what it is that you're talking about. So I'm trying to figure out exactly what that means. And can you give us an example of what you mean? Yes, Your Honor. An example would be a discovery motion um, seeking to discover information in order to uh, challenge the government's ability to use it, to figure out if the information the government is using is the result of electronic surveillance, or to figure out the scope of what ought to be suppressed based on a, a taint theory flowing from unlawful surveillance, right? So it's a discovery motion that is attendant to the government's use of that information. That's consistent with the, what, what all of 1806 is all about, what the prior two prongs of 1806F are about, and it's what the statutory text other means in this third prong. It's not talking about any motion to obtain uh, or discover information. It's talking about any other motion to obtain or discover in contradistinction to linking to the prior two circumstances, the, the chief one being that motion to suppress under E, which is what's referred to in the second clause. This is just like what the Supreme Court confronted in the Begay decision, where it confronted language that referred to a crime of of arson, burglary, murder, or any other crime uh, with a substantial likelihood of personal injury to a person, I believe is the language. And the Supreme Court said, you don't just look in isolation at whether a crime might have a substantial risk of injury. The word other there is telling you, you link it back to the prior elements in the list and you figure out whether it's similar to those other prior elements. That's also what's going on here. So we think that's clear from the context of the statute, the fact that the resolution of the motion depends on the legality of surveillance, which is true when you're talking about surveillance or a motion for discovery related to taint or an attempt to suppress but is wholly untrue. That's not the rule of decision when you just have a free-floating discovery motion. No one says, not even plaintiff, that you could grant or deny their motion to compel discovery based on a determination of the legality of the surveillance. That just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with the language of the statute, either in F or in G. Um, and secondly, just- so I was gonna ask you about G, so I guess uh, your answer to, to the, the, the question I asked your colleague on the other side regarding the remedies in G 
when he opined that the remedies are much broader than a simple grant or denial of a suppression motion, and he pointed to language in the that subsection that talked about granting or denying a motion to suppress or similar motion, that we're talking about the same categories of motions that you just described that limit the application of, of, uh, of F. Is that fair? That's exactly right, Your Honor. And the key point analytically is it doesn't say grant final judgment on an underlying civil claim. So you actually can't use 1806F to do that. So plaintiff's entire theory that you could adjudicate the standing and the merits of this case inside of F doesn't fit with the plain text of F for that simple reason. And then, I'm sorry, Judge Motz. Yeah, can I ask you how your reading of 1806F, or the, or the whole statute actually, um, accommodates the cause of action given in 1810? I'd be happy to, Your Honor. So the cause of action in 1810 is linked to criminal liability in 1809. And the conference report, that's 95, House Report 95-1720 at 34, I want to say, or maybe it's 32, says that um, the scope of civil liability should, quote, coincide with criminal liability under 1809. So it's, it's clear that 1810 isn't going to be some omnibus statute that basically anyone can use to allege and challenge surveillance. And so the core application anybody. of 1810. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't Anna. understand how anybody could use it, given your interpretation of uh, 1806. I mean, in so, other words, the government can do away with any claim, according to you. So I don't think that's quite right, Your Honor. And I just wanted to illustrate sort of why that is. The district court got it right when it said, look, 1810 actually doesn't apply against the government at all, as the Ninth Circuit has squarely held. It only applies to these sort of rogue intelligence agents in their in, suit in their individual capacities. And there's no reason to think that if the government were to say criminally prosecute an intelligence agent who were surveilling somebody without FISC authorization, that that then wouldn't allow some kind of follow-on civil suit. Nor, but the other, the other key point is that 1810 is not a promise that every litigant who tries to bring that claim will end up being able to obtain final judgment on the merits. There may well, be a whole host of... You're making the distinction between civil and criminal cases, which, you know, which is a happy one for you, except doesn't 1806 also refer to criminal case, uh, to civil cases? Yes, and we've never claimed otherwise, Your Honor. So, for example, the Hamid case in the Ninth Circuit. Is that it? No, I actually don't think it turns on whether we initiated the lawsuit or not. It actually turns on whether we're trying to use whoever initiated it, whether it's civil or criminal. If we're trying to use information affirmatively against the person we're litigating against, that's when 1806 comes into play to determine whether we're able to do so or not. I just want to actually return to the discussion about whether you know this is entirely within our, within our control and whether um, plaintiffs will be able to bring civil lawsuits challenging alleged NSA surveillance. So just to finish that argument, because I think it's very important. First, when we give notice in criminally prosecuting somebody, we are telling them you were subject to surveillance. Now, if, if then there's a determination that surveillance was unlawful for some reason, there may be an opportunity for that criminal defendant to turn around and become a civil plaintiff and then yes. see. But, sir, we know from history that sometimes you don't give notice and there is surveillance. We have confessions by the attorney general. There's a, there's a number of instances in this case that are talked about, correct? 
I, so I, I, we absolutely have. I mean, do you want me to go doing... find them in the brief? You don't remember those? No, no, Your Honor, I'm not denying that there has been dispute about whether the government is no. giving. Attorney General of the United States confessed error. Yes, no. Your Honor, and since then, That's the government has redoubled its efforts, and so. I, but... Well, I'm glad to hear that, but still, <laughs> that was a dispute. That was uh, a withholding by the government that it was not. Um, permitted to do, right? I, I believe that was the basis for the confession of error, Your Honor. But to, to return to the answer, that we have provided notice in these cases, and that's why the Ninth Circuit and the Second Circuit have addressed and upheld the constitutionality of a different type of FISA 702 surveillance, uh, the PRISM program, in cases we cite in our briefs. But then to move on with the answer, um, there's the the ACLU versus Clapper case in the Second Circuit, in which we actually didn't invoke the state secrets privilege when the plaintiffs there sought to challenge um, NSA's call detail record collection. And, you know, standing did not prove to be an obstacle ultimately in that case. We didn't invoke the privilege. And so it's simply not true that everywhere and always we're going to invoke this, the state secrets privilege. That's because the privilege is not lightly invoked. We follow uh, the Supreme Court's uh, mandate in Reynolds that we think hard about it and use it only where necessary. Secondly, it's not a tool wholly within our arsenal. The district court stands as a gatekeeper and it reviews our invocation and either upholds it or does not. It was upheld here properly and for very good reason as the Barnes Declaration makes clear, the classified declaration here. Um, and, and, and so, and, and finally, the privilege is not a categorical matter in the way that plaintiffs imagine. It's simply not true that everywhere and always in, in suits like these, um, there will be a, a fundamental state secrets problem. There wasn't in ACLU uh, versus Clapper, the Second Circuit case we were just talking about. We didn't even invoke Lisa, the privilege. Uh, excuse me. Uh, may I ask, ask a procedural question? So you, you've mentioned twice the classified declaration of the Deputy Director of the NSA, I think it was, who filed that declaration and Judge Ellis relied on it. I was just curious, so it, it would seem to, given the invocation of the state's secrets privilege, it would seem to almost waive it if, if in fact you've submitted something in camera for the court to review. So I, can you talk about, I mean, what, what, what was the process for that? So this is actually the, the traditional process followed in state secrets cases. It's very common for the government to submit a public declaration saying these categories of information are privileged because disclosure would harm the national security. And sometimes a public declaration might suffice on its own. But very frequently, we will have to follow that up with an in-camera classified declaration explaining and laying out exactly why release of this information would harm the national security in grave ways by, you know, I can't go into the details here, obviously, but the general- Right, right, but, but my, my question is, isn't that the equivalent of the in-camera review that we're fighting about with respect to 1806 mm. or is it something different? It's something different, Your Honor. And so this court's okay. opinions in El Masri and Sterling go into this to some degree, which is that sometimes it'll be necessary to examine some information in camera to determine if the category of information is privileged. But once you make that determination, the privileged information is removed from the case entirely. And there can't be further in-camera proceedings using the privileged information to conduct the litigation. That's antithetical to all the principles of the state secrets privilege. I think El Mastro and Sterling are quite clear on that point. Well, of course, their fund fundamental 
saying that with the meaning of that, it's it is a safety privilege is no longer applicable. Um, and I, I know that you don't agree with that, but um, if that was so, if this and the court are that says that the privilege issue has agreed with the previous position here. Judge Mott, I don't know about you, I don't know about the lawyers, but I had a hard time under hearing what you were. Asking, oh, um, I'm sorry. Um, my thing is on as loud as it'll go. Can you hear me now? It's fine now. Yes. Yeah, it's okay. Fine. I'll just talk. I'll just try to talk louder. I don't usually have a talk. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the. Uh, uh, the. It wasn't that you weren't loud enough. It was just muffled for some reason. Oh. But you're fine now. Okay. Um, what I was asking you is about the uh, claim by Wikimedia that uh, 1806 does away with. Um, the privilege and the fact that other courts have considered this, a number of other courts, maybe all, every other court that's considered this exact argument has agreed with Wikipedia. Your Honor, the only other circuit court I'm aware of that even considers I think, did that I say question. Court? Sorry, Your I Honor? Say, I said every other court. I didn't say oh, I'm sorry. I, there was some audio problem. So I, I, okay, I apologize. No, so. So I just want to highlight this style of argument that Wikimedia has been raising here has only lately arisen, right? This is sort of a late breaking discovery inside the FISA starting decades after the FISA was enacted. So there's actually that well, much case. I, I saw that in your brief, but actually there, there seem to be cases that are 10 or 20 years old. So I don't know that that's actually true. But Go ahead. No, so I, I agree. Even taking the cases that the other side cites to, I think they start in 2004, 2005. I guess my simple point is there's not too many cases on this subject. Many of those cases that they cite to, my reading of them was that it, the, the court took it as a hypothetically could be true that you could use 1806 in this contemplated way, but did not use that as, as a basis for resolving the, the claims before the court in those opinions. So I would take many of those as being dicta. In any event, I really want to address this head on because I think it's very important. Nothing in 1806F indicates that it intends to displace the state secrets privilege. First of all, El Masri makes clear that the privilege has foundations both in the common law and the constitution. El Masri but says it has- El Masri was decided, I was there when it was decided, maybe I was on the panel, I remember it very well. Um, the Supreme Court has said that this is a common law privilege. And that's the law. We, we follow the Supreme Court, right? Oh, no. So I don't, the, the Supreme Court in general dynamics did not have an occasion to determine whether, in addition to being a common law privilege, it also has constitutional foundations. Well, they characterized it as a common law privilege. And if it was a constitutional privilege, don't you think they would have said that? No, Your Honor. There's nothing oh. that these two buckets aren't mutually. Um, they can coexist together. And so I think it's actually quite commonplace to talk about the common law when figuring out the scope of a constitutional right or obligation. We talk about that in the Fourth Amendment context quite frequently. And so there's actually nothing sort of odd about the idea that a part of the common law is also constitutionalized. And so we think El Masri has that just right. But also the Supreme Court in general dynamics did not turn around and say, you know, and call into question what it previously said in Egan and Nixon. In Egan, it says that 
the Article II obligations of the executive branch to protect classified national security information, that, that's a constitutional function of the government. And Nixon says that privileges that help the executive carry out its constitutional obligations are themselves part of the executive privilege and have a constitutional basis. That's why El Masri was right. General Dynamics says nothing to call it into question. And and, and just to highlight, there's nothing antagonistic about saying that 1806F procedures can coexist with the privilege. Indeed, as we point out in our brief, the DC Circuit noted in the Belfield case that even before 1806F was enacted, the government's ability to use information obtained or derived from electronic surveillance was often subject to a determination in camera and ex parte and that coexisted comfortably with the existence of the state secrets privilege because they have different scopes and different functions are invoked by different people and they do different things. 1806F is about whether we can use information against another lit litigant. That's why it's in invoked by the attorney general. That's the decision maker in charge of government litigation. The state secrets privilege is about removing information from a case. So it can't be used by us or anyone else, including the district court in camera. And it's that's invoked by the person with control over the information. And it's different. And Mr. Busa, that because, seems a little bit inconsistent, excuse me, a little bit inconsistent with the plain language of the of, of F, which includes uh, among its, um, you know, the, the, the things that uh, a party can do includes discovery of certain information. So how does discovery of information square with removal of information pursuant to the privilege? Because again, that's the F procedure is where we're trying to use information against another litigant. And that person is trying to interfere well, but the with the government. To do the so. government would have no need to discover information. It's got the information so that the the the, the uh, suggestion to discover information must mean something it must mean that the other side the person who doesn't have the information is seeking to obtain it in some way correct your honor and as we were discussing earlier our our view is that the best reading of that language is it's a discovery motion that's seeking to do something similar to what the suppression motion in E is seeking to do. So here it would be discovery related to the question of, say, taint from a prior uh, unlawful surveillance, right? So the question of what, what scope of evidence has to be suppressed. Um, so that's the kind of discovery motion we're talking about, something tied to the government's use of information. That's why- Is there a case, the rule... do you have a case that, that stands for that proposition or, uh, or the, would this be the first case? I'm not immediately aware of a case addressing that question other than of course the Fazaga case, which we've discussed before in the Ninth Circuit. And I think that's because it's so rare for litigants to try to make use of this third clause because the third clause, as the legislative history makes clear, is there in order to prohibit, quote, inventive litigants, like the plaintiff here, from trying to bypass the procedures laid out in the, in the prior clauses. That's the first and second clause. Um, and so, to, you know, to my knowledge, there's not much litigation about what can fit within this third clause. We think all the textual indications are in our favor here. There's the title of the section. There's the fact that all the prior sections about the government's use of information. The first three, the first two clauses of 1806F are about the government's use of information. Here it says other. So it's not any motion to obtain or discover. It's any other motion that links it back to the essential features of the prior thing. And it's also 
what gets determined in the 1806F procedures, that's legality of surveillance. That's the rule of decision for deciding suppression and discovery attendant to suppression. It can moot that question. But it's not the rule of decision for a general discovery motion like what plaintiff has presented here. And the plain text of G and F is that the result of an F proceeding is not you know, final judgment on the merits of a civil case. It's the grant or denial of a motion, right? So, and, and I think it's actually important to address something that arose in my colleague's stand-up time that I wanna make sure I have a chance to address before my time is out, although I see I'm, I'm, I'm running down. So if I might have a chance to address this idea of a general verdict, um, maybe protecting state secrets, and it's clearly impossible in this case first we just went over how 1806F can't be used for adjudication to final judgment on the merits of civil claims. It just doesn't fit with a plain text of the statute. So you can't use F in that way, nor could you use the state secrets privilege because we know from Sterling and El Nasser, you can't use privileged information ex parte and in camera. But secondly, uh, a bottom line ruling, quote, plaintiff wins, as plaintiff here imagines, would disclose standing, and that would reveal state secrets. Um, not, secondly, because no, they can't get that. Sir, I don't think that's necessarily, I thought about that. I don't think that's necessarily so. Um, unless you're talking about revealing it to the district court, which which seems to me that your whole um, argument seems to be that Judge Motz, we're, you're muffled again. You're muffled I'm, again. I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah. Talking the same way. Here, you'll just get, I'm afraid if I get too close, it'll be nauseous, <laughs> but anyway. No, you're fine. You're fine. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm afraid I've lost my train of thought, but but the district court isn't revealing. Do you believe that revealing things to the district court um, breaks the state secret? And that seems to be what you say. I have two responses. I'm sorry, uh -huh. I have two responses, Your Honor. The first is, yes, that's exactly what Sterling says. Sterling says the risk of using state secrets in camera is that it will lead to even an inadvertent disclosure outside of chambers. Well, I don't know that that's exactly yes to my question. I understand that that's a risk. But so it's the government's position here that revealing information to the district court consider uh, all by itself, and then to issue an opinion that may put under seal the whole thing, that that is revealing a statement. So first of all, again, two, two responses, and to get the second one, yes, the well, district court would correctly- so yes is the answer that would violate the state secrets privilege. El Masri and Sterling make clear you can't use privileged information in camera and ex parte because that's playing with fire in the words of Sterling. It risks inevitably that, that, that unintentional disclosure outside of chambers. And that is too great a risk to allow. That's why this court's precedents and the Supreme Court don't allow use of privileged information to decide the merits of any case. That's been roundly rejected. But also just to highlight why even if um, it were thought you could go through with that kind of in-camera procedure consistent with the state secrets privilege, even the bottom line ruling, plaintiff wins, 
that would necessarily disclose standing. And as the district court correctly found, the existence or non-existence of surveillance of an entity like the plaintiff here um, is itself a state secret that would give a roadmap to foreign adversaries, very savvy foreign adversaries who know how to read the tea leaves uh, as to which channels of communication are open, which are not. It would allow them to evade lawful government surveillance. It would also give them a roadmap for, for conducting operations against the United States. Those are all extremely grave consequences. They're discussed in detail in the classified Barnes Declaration. And so for that simple reason, even the bottom line ruling plaintiff wins would disclose a state secret. And of course, if plaintiff can't win, then it's got a remediability problem from the get-go uh, in terms of standing. And Can so I we just have one question about um, uh, a grieved status, a grieved person. Um, can you become an aggrieved person under this statute in any other way than the government's definition of I think it would be quite difficult, and I can't think of a concrete circumstance where they'd be able to do that consistent with the privilege. But I think my answer about that. It, it's really impossible to state it in categorical terms because, again, the question for the privilege is whether revelation of the underlying information would pose such a harm to national security that that information has to be removed from the case entirely. And that's just going to depend on the context of the case. My best pitch for you on this is just to think about ACLU versus Clapper. That's that Second Circuit 2015 case in which we did not raise the privilege. And the plaintiff there, my understanding was, was able to make outstanding on the basis of a public record. And so it's simply not the true. This is a tool wholly within our toolkit. And in any event, the district court is ultimately the one that decides whether the privilege is upheld or not. And so it's not true that a civil plaintiff is at our mercy. You have about a minute and 30 seconds left. And I want to give my colleagues a chance. Rushing, go ahead. I'd like to ask you, Mr. Busa, what I asked Mr. Toomey about, about the feasibility of inline filtering. Um, as I mentioned, the technologist brief uh, raises something that I, I didn't see either side discussing um, about uh, the fact that these um, tier one ISPs wrap or encapsulate the header and your argument for the feasibility of inline filtering seems to rely on access to the header. Um, what's your what's your response to that? My two responses, one on the merits, which is that they seem to be wrong, but secondly, they don't actually, it's important that that is not an opinion from an expert offered on the record in the district court and subject to adversarial testing under 702. And so we think it's, it's, it's quite unfair for plaintiffs to try to be relying now on the untested assertions uh, and sweeping conclusions drawn here without any of the underlying evidence that an expert would need to show that they're relying on in order for their opinion to be admissible as evidence, right? So, so I can't point you to, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Oh, no, I, I was just going to clarify. So you you don't think that this was raised or any evidence about this was brought in front of the district court um, to, to create uh, a fact question there? 
No, Your Honor, and certainly not in the sweeping terms that Amiki presented. I think it's very telling that the reply brief quotes the Amiki and their very sweeping conclusions, and then just says, see also some paragraphs of the Bradner Declaration, where when I read them, I don't read Mr. Bradner reaching any kind of those kinds of sweeping conclusions that Amiki seemed to raise. And so we do think it's quite unfair for plaintiffs to be trying to inject that into the record now when it's clearly not part of the record. Secondly, just to address the merits of all of this, even Amiki don't say that all tier one ISPs do this encapsulation. So it really is a question of wherever the government is conducting surveillance, wherever that may be, um, is it able to do so um, in the method laid out as a hypothetical by our expert? And the answer, even under the amici's reading, is yes, if that's being conducted at a person who's not using this encapsulation technique. And secondly, even addressing this encapsulation point, you know, just reading a Wikipedia article about encapsulation, ironically, um, it seems to me that on the merits, encapsulation happens within a certain part of a network, and there's 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 routers that pop on and off these capsules, and there's other routers in the middle that just read the capsule heading, and so even on we're Mickey's the expert theory, now. Um, no, and that's the problem, Your Honor, is that we never had a chance. Sir, let me let my colleagues ask any additional questions. You've already gotten another three minutes. Okay, Judge Rushing, do you have any more questions? No, I'm thank you. Judge Sorry, what did you say? I said yeah. no, thank you, Judge Motz. Okay, Judge Diaz. I don't. Thank you. All right. Perhaps you can conclude your argument in five seconds. <laughs> we simply ask that you affirm, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Mr. Toomey, I'll give you three additional minutes on top of what happened because your colleague got three additional minutes on top of what I've given him. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Judge Motz. Appreciate it. Uh, just quickly to touch on the point that Judge Rushing raised, uh, the expert declaration does uh, address techniques similar to the encapsulation that is discussed in the amicus brief, and that's in the Brad first Bradner declaration at paragraphs 91, 174, and 230, which discuss the use of tunnels and gnats by providers. Uh, and those, those techniques wrap communications in another layer in the same way that the, that the amicus- is that, about the, is that about the header? Because that's what, I mean, the government is saying it can filter based on the information in the header. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, it is. Are those the paragraphs that you cited in your reply brief? Uh, I I don't know that we cited those paragraphs specifically in our reply brief, Your Honor. Uh, I did want to point out that that those issues were addressed in the declarations in the record. So you're saying it's the same thing as tunneling or similar enough that you put the district court on notice and that the government should have had its expert respond to that? Yes, Your Honor. Tunneling and and NATs and ATs is the is the other technique. Um, but what I, I want to come back to some of the bigger picture questions. First, uh, the the government claims that there that one can find a limitation in 1806F by by pointing to uh, this the two of the scenarios in this in the statute as showing that there must be clear evidence or a government admission of surveillance, but. But even the second prong under 1806F, which discusses when a, 
when a defendant may bring a motion to suppress does not depend on uh, on a go on government notice. A party is aggrieved regardless of whether a defendant has received notice or a person has received notice. And so the, the pattern or the principle that the government is trying to draw isn't found there. The government's reliance on the word other in the statute, the government moves the word other to a place in the statute where it doesn't exist. What the, what the third prong of 1806F refers to is other statutes or rules. And there's no ambiguity about what that means. Other statutes and rules means other than the provisions in FISA that, have, that are the subject of the preceding prongs. On the question of displacement, the, the statute again speaks clearly. It says notwithstanding any other law, and that encompasses the common law state secrets privilege. Now, I also wanna emphasize that Congress clearly intended to encompass civil cases under 1806F, and it did not draw the type of distinction anywhere that the government claims here. It did not claim that it, that it only applies to civil cases where suppression or admissibility is at issue. And in fact, the House report uh, at 95, I think it's 1253, page 94, talks about the government facing a choice of having to concede litigation when a suit is brought against it um, and having to face the choice of whether to concede that, that civil litigation or not. Um, so all of these show that, that Congress's uh, intent and the structure of the statute, including the civil remedy, Judge Motz, that you were asking about, fall within the scope of the procedure in 1806F. And Congress was explicit when the conference committee met and the House and Senate versions of FISA were reconciled that this provision, the third prong in 1806F, was being added to cover civil cases where FISA surveillance was challenged. Uh, on one further point in terms of what a ruling in Wikimedia's favor would disclose, the government claims it would provide a roadmap to, to people, to the public, but what, what all it would reveal is that the government's public disclosures uh, establish Wikimedia's standing, which, which of course the members of the public can already examine. Scott Bradner has examined them, the, the other experts who filed their amicus brief have, have examined those disclosures and have reached the unsurprising conclusion that Wikimedia, which engages in, tr in trillions of web communications, is subject to upstream surveillance, which the government has acknowledged includes collection of web activity. And now that does not, now a ruling for Wikimedia merely finding that it has shown it is more likely than not that some of its communications are subject to the surveillance, which is all that, that a ruling in Wikimedia's fav, uh, favor would show, would not add anything to the, to the public record that any member of the public could not already see there. Thank you very much. We appreciate your argument, appreciate both arguments and your excellent briefs. And we'll take the case under advisement.